Hello there and welcome to this sneak peek into season two of An Irishman Inside Basketball with me, Jarlath Regan. Joining me today is the director and writer of the greatest basketball movie ever made, Ron Shelton. If you grew up in the 90s or if you're a fan of basketball movies, White Men Can't Jump holds a special place in your heart. Every line of it is quotable. Many of the jokes in it still haunt basketball courts today. It was a game changer in terms of the culture and introducing the world to streetball, Yo Mama jokes, Nike Air Command Force, and of course, Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. Their entire careers skyrocketed after this movie. Well, Ron volunteered after a small email from my uh, researcher, John Marr, reached him to sit down and have an hour and a half long chat about this movie that he loves so much and he doesn't disappoint we get everything here from the casting to the onset building the actual creation of those venice beach courts some little known facts about the bets that went on set at the time of the movie the reaction afterwards and how ron himself almost got hustled by the studio There's a whole ton of other revelations in here that I know you're going to love. But today I'm giving you a small sneak peek into it because we Irishman Abroad podcast have moved to Patreon.com. Now to access all of our content in full, including the next season of Irishman Abroad, you'll need to be signed up at Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. It's our move to make these podcasts sustainable for the future. I love making them. I know you like listening to them. Help us continue to do it by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Ron Shelton, it's fantastic to have you on Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball for this very specific episode about for me, the greatest basketball movie ever made, White Men Can't Jump. And I thought the best place to start, given that the movie, amongst other things, spawned a boom in your mother jokes with your own mother, who, by your accounts, was incapable of telling a lie. So much so that if a couple came to her and said, we're getting engaged, isn't that great? that she couldn't hold back from telling them if she thought it was a bad idea. Correct. Yeah, she was absolutely non-judgmental and ruthlessly honest. It's quite an extraordinary combination. So that obviously forms a big part of you. I mean, that, I guess, relationship with the truth is the through line of an awful lot of your movies because there's, you know, there's the truth, there's golf, there's the PGA, and then there's the truth of golf. There's the NBA, and then there's street ball, and the same with uh, Bull Durham. Was that something that you think contributed to maybe you seeing yourself as an outsider and always empathising with the outsiders? Without without a question, that I've always even in Hollywood, I'm an outsider, and uh, you know I, I've I've sort of never been invited to the parties or the clubs. <laughs> At the same time, I'm kind of curious what goes on in there, but I don't really want to go. So uh, I think that's in my DNA for sure. 
So that, uh, you know, brings me to the inspiration, I guess, for the for the writing of the script, if we were to start there, because from what I can tell, you wrote it in one sitting. Uh, well, the, the bulk of it, thir- the 37 pages that got you the deal was written in one sitting. And I guess my question is that it spawned from your own experiences to a degree of playing on the courts of L.A. and just being the white boy that could shoot. Is that correct? Largely, I I mean, I played high school and college basketball, so I, you know, I had some level of of ability. But the white guy on the playground, I always thought was an interesting dynamic. And even after Bull Durham and I was a had a directing writing directing career, on the street, nobody knew who I was. I was just a guy that could ha- still had a little game at my age. <laughs> and the whole script came out of that. My experience on the playground all over the place. And, and specifically, when I was after Bull Durham and Blaze, that I was in these arguments, and they were funny, and, uh, you know, the democracy of the playground, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I thought, there's a movie here. There's a movie here. I don't know what it is, but there's a movie. I actually had the title before I wrote a line of the script. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So the title, it, does it just vaporize into your mind at some point or was it something you actually heard? No, nobody ever used that expression that I knew, but everybody knew it was true. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and I thought when I said it, I thought it's funny. To some people, it might be provocative, and to others, it's just a statement of fact. So I asked my then-girlfriend, now-wife, the actress Lolita Davidovich, who we were going in the going-out stage, I'm getting serious stage, I said, what do you think of this title? She said, I love it. And then I asked my teenage daughter from a previous marriage, what do you think of this title? And she said, I love it. And then I asked the woman who was sort of my producing partner, and they all loved it, and they were completely different places in their lives. Mm. I thought, well, three women loved it. And uh, ultimately, the only complaints were among sort of liberal critics who liked the movie but were upset with the title, and I, I could never understand that. Yeah, I mean, the the title is a, is a winner. Like, it is one of those home runs, uh, if you will, that, like, there's plenty of movies that you know today got made on the basis of of the title. I can think of one in particular, Frenemies was a was a movie that just didn't have anything other than somebody write a script around that. But you, your choosing of that title at that particular time, I guess, spoke to the uh, racial tension that was in the air of L.A. at the time. Rodney King had already uh, suffered what he'd suffered, but the trial hadn't taken place and the movie was released just prior to the riots, did anybody ever point to you and say that this in helped contribute or this was in some way part of the tension that was in the air or that it kind of threw a magnifying glass on it? I don't think it contributed. I think it, it reflected it. But I think, you know, comedy, any good comedy is based on pain. Mm. And as we know, and historically, uh, this movie was embraced by the black community and the street community, whatever that is, the working class community of of all ethnic backgrounds. I I, I later made another movie set in this time zone that was very 
very volatile, called Dark Blue, that James Elroy had written and, and uh, David Ayers. And it was explosive about a bad cop as the, the jury, as we waited for the jury decision in Rodney King. So I've done two different takes on this time frame. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, I think, I, I hope it's uh, the, the humor grounds us and we share our flaws and our foolishnesses and, and it makes us more connected. I think great comedy can do that. It, like it certainly did. I mean, look, Ron, I was a, you know, a 12 year old Irish boy in the countryside of Ireland. And it was probably my first understanding of a lot of things, including this race dynamic that I, I guess that white guys were discriminated against or or not discriminated against, but viewed lower on the totem pole in terms of the game and in terms uh, on certain levels they were uh, seen as not up to not up to scratch when you're writing it and you get those first 37 pages down i understand that the block came when it came to gloria the female character can you talk to us at all about what the block was and how you got around it well, I think uh, it's in the air all the time now that <clears throat> how poorly women are treated, you know, in hmm. movies and television, and certainly people of different ethnic backgrounds, and, and it's very much being blown up now, which is a good thing. But the problem is if you make a male-centric movie, the women can't be there just to serve the men's story, and that's critical whether you're making a Western or a sports movie. Hmm that every character, whatever their gender, has to have their own arc, whether you spend much time with it or not. And in the case of the girl, the woman in this one, there's the wife, there's Wesley's wife, and he's got a conventional family, it turns out, and family life. But the girl, Gloria, has to have her own life that you could take her out of this movie and make another movie about her. Mm -hmm. That's my whole thing. And that she can't be defined in terms of the guy. She's not there to support the guy, to sure. do this with the guy. And so I I was struggling. And um, I was having lunch with the woman who worked with me and her friends and at a little Mexican place called Lucy's, which is across from Paramount, very legendary old divey Mexican joint. I said, talk to me about all the women you know and men you know, and just start telling stories. And this guy said, well, I knew this woman who moved to L.A. to get on Jeopardy. And she was devoted to Jeopardy, and she studied the questions, and she was obsessed with it. And I said, well, wh what was her goal? And he said, she thought that if she won on Jeopardy, it would just change her life and launch her into anything. And I said, that's enough. That's perfect. Because we never actually define what the hell winning on Jeopardy is supposed to do for you. Mm. But it doesn't matter that you believe it's going to change your life is was enough. enough. Yeah. And, I, and I thought, that's perfect. Because I've got the Woody characters, obviously never read a book. And uh, so immediately you have two completely opposing arcs and we're catching these two people at this moment in their life mm -hmm. but it was written for in my mind a kind of a 
waspy woman at a private girls' college, women's college in the East, like Smith or Bennington, one of those famous ones who, you know, who runs away with the bad boy rebel gotcha. warrior, warrior poet who turns out to be just a slacker. In the past, you said that it was meant to be a kind of a southern belle, and it was actually Rosie yeah. Perez that blew that yeah. idea out of the water. Right. Before we get to Rosie and her coming in the door and making you rethink and doing that essential thing that, uh, you know, you've talked about before as well, which is, you know, knowing the chord changes so that you can improvise and break the rules. You, know, you were present enough in the moment to go, that was my idea, but here in front of me is a better one which is essential to making good decisions on the fly, I'd imagine. The casting of the male leads and the male players in this movie came was a, locked into these pickup games that you organized. What can you tell us about those pickup games? Were they shot? Where were they set? And what kind of actors came down to play in them? Well, a little background. I, I played around L.A., but um, there was a, a game at Coinga and Santa Monica Boulevard, and it was kind of a rough. It's it's actually Hollywood, but if you've ever been to Hollywood, Hollywood's kind of rough and uh, and non-existent if you've ever looked for it, mm. uh, to be honest. But I went to my Friday afternoon game. And it was chained up, and uh, there's an old guy there, and I said, what happened? And he said, oh, you know, I hear what happened yesterday? I said, no. He said, well, uh, Raymond went for his glove box. <laughs> and I said, his glove box? And that was a, a code for he went for his gun, his glove box in the car. And what did he do? What did Raymond do with his gun? Oh, he shot Willie. Jesus. He shot Willie. He said, yeah, he killed him. And I said, why? He said, well, they're arguing over a, a charge block, you know, yeah. the classic basketball <laughs> yeah. disagreement. Is it a charge or is it a block? And so they, the city closed the court down, and a lot of players moved into the Hollywood Y, which was a really funky old gym. So gotcha. suddenly the Hollywood Y had really great games. A lot of college guys, a lot of former, a handful of ex-NBA guys, some street guys. I mean, a you know, mixture of things, and that became the best game for a few years in town. And those were the guys in the games that gave me the idea. I mean, Marvin Gaye was working out over in the gym. I didn't know who it was because he was a skinny little guy. So he said, that's Marvin. So these, these games at the Hollywood Y gave me the idea because the arguments were really great. The arguments were better than the games half the time. And um, How do you mean? Well, the game would stop and they'd be uh, in a disagreement. And for five minutes, guys would be jawing at each other, going after each other. And sometimes they were really funny, and they were often, you know, X-rated and uh, profane as hell and funny as hell. And, and, you know, the mama joke variety, but really, really wild ones. And, uh, and sometimes abstract ones that you couldn't figure out. I saw your mama kicking a can down the street. I said, what you doing? She said, moving. <laughs> you know, something like that. And was, you know, you can analyze that critic, and a literary critic can analyze that and take it apart, and a cultural critic can come in. And sometimes they were just plain profane. So when I did get the script finished, I put out a call for guys who would actually play and thought they were actors or wanted to be actors. And all those guys showed up 
to audition, and they didn't realize it was me until that moment. Right. That I that I was the filmmaker, and gotcha. they came in. We and they and they would go, oh my god! And I said, don't worry, you got the part already. But and so we hired about twenty five guys and put them in a basketball camp to train them like just certain fundamental things. I mean, you know, I, I had drawn up simple, basic plays. They had to learn them left side, right side. So at any day, I could say, play 12B from the left side. Well, they'd run it, and the way we'd shoot it, it wouldn't look staged. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, but um, that's where it came from, and all those guys showing up. And I'm, I'm very dear friends with most of those guys to this day. Okay, so a few of the names that I, I know of are Keanu Reeves, David Duchovny. That's two. They, they auditioned for Woody's part. Right. Yeah, so does that mean they came down and played? Yes. And uh, I'm told because years later, I had a meeting with George Clooney after he's a big star. And he said, you know, you didn't hire me. I auditioned for that part. <laughs> and I said, well, it's not probably the biggest mistake I've ever made, George. I've never been able to work with him. I think he's still pissed off that I didn't hire him. <laughs> uh, but we had those auditions would be wannabe actors going full court or three on three with real players. I mean, mm. you know, Dwayne Martin and Nigel Miguel who were in the movie. Nigel was a star at UCLA. Yeah. Dwayne Martin was a, drafted by the Knicks. So there was a guy that played four years at Princeton, all started for four years. There were, we had some ex-NBA guys in the mix. Marcus Johnson. So, well, Marcus was great. I mean, Marcus, you know, was one of the great pros mm. for his first seven years until he he, he got hurt in a car accident, what happened to Marcus, but he won the John Wooden Award. He was an All-American. He was All-NBA, All-Pro several years. So guys like that were everywhere. And a, and, hu uh, but a huge, a huge get in Marcus, because for those that don't know, listening to this, he plays the character of Raymond, who goes and recreates the scene that you just described of going back to his glove box. But in the movie, he obviously goes and is called out. Raymond, is that you? Take that off. And the gun gets bought off him. I mean, for some for a player who had reached those heights, did you have difficulty convincing Marcus Johnson to do this part, even though it is a hilarious and amazing role in the movie? It's still a pretty rugged depiction and a, a tough character compared to, you know, I'd imagine the respect he had in the community for, for winning the wooden reward and being a pro. Marcus wanted to be in the movie, and he's a very classy guy, very interesting guy. And uh, by the way, the other half of that scene where he tries to hold up the liquor store and the guy knows who it is, that's based on a real story in, in uh, South L.A. that I was told by a number of people that there was a player whose name was Raymond. I won't use his last name. Mm -hmm. He was seven feet tall. He was seven foot tall. He was a star high school player. This goes back decades who went to the pros and was a complete bust. And he ends up back in his neighborhood, sitting outside on the curb, just hanging out, just kind of had lost his life. Mm. And one day he pulled a mask over his head and went in to hold up the thing. He was seven foot one. And, and he <laughs> and he basically been there for 25 years. And, of course, the liquor store guy said, Raymond, take off that mask. <laughs> um, so I took the two stories and combined them into the Marcus Johnson sequence. So, so much of this, Ron, this magpieing and this uh, collection of flavor, essentially, that would 
kind of be the melting pot that becomes the movie is just spinning in the air, including, you know, Kadeem Hardison getting in touch with Biz Marquis to get this running list of Yo Mama jokes. This is all documented in various different places around the Internet on the uh, oral history of this movie. But there are some things that that aren't covered, such as, as I mentioned, whether those pickup games were filmed, if you still have that footage. And it was as like I failed to. I, I really don't believe this, that we know that Wesley Snipes was the weaker of the two players. How, how much weaker are we talking? Some some people on the set said that it was difficult to get him to make a shot. Talk us through that a little bit. Well, the Wesley's a great athlete. Don't, let me clarify and make the distinction. <laughs> okay, he's a great natural athlete and martial arts guy. But he, you know, and he's not too extremely tall. I don't know what he is five ten, but he can get his elbow above the rim. I mean, he couldn't those days. But he just didn't play basketball, but he could learn anything. And where Woody was, I guess, an average athlete, but really knew the basketball game. He played all the time. So you had one athlete and one basketball player. Mm-hmm. And so we just taught, we taught Wesley, and we showed him footage of players. We said, you must learn to do this over and over and over, and the dribble and the this and the that. And he did. Which is square up in the jump shot, you know, be able to dribble behind your back, between your legs. But, you know, he also palms the basketball. You see him just mm. put that hand down and pick it off the ground. You can't teach that. <laughs> and he said, look, at the beginning, he said, everybody knows I'm not a basketball player. But when this comes out, I'm going to have to sit at 42nd Street in Times Square in New York, where all my brothers go to the movies. And I'm going to sit in the middle of that crowd and they're going to be have a chip on their shoulder saying, waiting for me to, to look bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna look, I have to look so good that after they say, Wes, we didn't know you can play. Come on, we want to play you for $1,000 right now down you know, 34th Street. And Wes say, no, I don't hang out with you punks. That, <laughs> that, was, that was his motivation. Amazing. And, and he did it. So He did. He did. I mean, he looks every inch the player. I mean, the other, the other big you know, cornerstone or tentpole of this movie is that chemistry between the two of them. Hey, hey, man, what's the score? Chump, I'm talking to you. Oh, what, what, you deaf or something? Talking to the fucking air. My name ain't Chump, it's Billy Hoyle. (laughs) Billy Hoyle. Billy Hoyle. Billy Hoyle. Okay, Billy. Now, can you count to ten, Billy? Yeah. Good. What's the score, Billy? I don't know. Then you're a chump. I mean, be a chump. I just said that wasn't my name. <laughs> he pumped your ass in. Fuck you. Was that something you knew of? Well, like, we know they worked on movies before this. Or did somebody tip you off that these two guys would be great together? Because my understanding is that Denzel was either the studio choice or an early front runner for the role of Sidney Dean? Well, everybody, uh, Denzel was the star and he, he passed on the script. So we later read a lot of people and Wesley was shooting a movie called 
Oh, I just slipped my a little indie movie. He played. He's in a wheelchair the whole movie. What was it called? Anyway, and so he would come off the set to audition, and he's just a brilliant cold reader. I mean, mm-hmm. he could never see a script before. You hand it to him, and he's convincing. Right. And so he showed up for a basketball try tryout, and he walked onto the court with more attitude and and you know than you've ever seen in your life. So he'd already won that battle, you know. He he was Sidney Dean before he'd shot the ball, and that. So we got Wesley, and then the problem was finding Billy. To be honest, because I had two or three candidates who were well known. I had two or three candidates who were lesser known. Woody was still the seventh lead in a TV show, Cheers, but people kind of knew him. And when Wesley came, Woody came in to to read with Wesley. I, I immediately knew that was it because, as we now know, Woody's a great actor. He's just not a comic goofball. Mm. I mean, his his range is staggering in mm. American movies. He can make you cry. He can terrify you. He can make you laugh. He can do anything. The truth is, so can Wesley. I hope his. You know, I'm looking forward to working with him again. But what Wesley can't be is Woody, and what Woody can't be is Wesley. They can't occupy the other's emotional area. Woody can do anything but be a really cool black dude, you know? (laughs) And Wesley can do anything but be that goofless white guy. So they couldn't step on each other in that way. They could only compete in the best sense Mm. and bounce off each other. And Wesley would throw out a quick line of, and Woody would uh, deflect it and bounce off it and spin it and throw it back at him. So nothing that either of them could do to each other threw them off. So uh, that was... I knew immediately that was it. The 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 um, you know they hadn't worked that much together. They did they did this movie, I think Wildcats, but I don't think they had much in it together, and they weren't very big parts. Mm. Or Wesley was Wesley was in Wildcats. I don't know if what he was, but um, no, it was instant. I got it. I got these guys. If the studio now approves, and Joe Roth who ran Fox, I called him up, and he said, "Great, we'll go with it." Well, let me get let me dig in then, because the lines are, you know, they've entered basketball vernacular. I mean, they as much as Simpsons quotes are, you know, interchangeable and usable in life. I mean, the sun even shines on a dog's ass. You know, you can put a cat in the oven, but that doesn't make it a biscuit. Don't make it a biscuit. yeah. Yeah. So you have these in the script at this point, like like I said earlier, I'm really aware that your preparation for your films is meticulous to the point where you don't lose this juicy frisson and bits of magic that fall from the sky. How many of those lines are in the script off your pen, off the bat? You know, most of it, 95% of it was the script we went into rehearsal with. And then we rehearsed with all these guys. And that's where I say, look, this is the laboratory right now. Let's try things. Bring your bad ideas, your good ideas. I'll shoot them down. You'll shoot them down. We have a good script to work off of. And that's, for instance, the mama joke thing. There were mama jokes in the script. Mm -hmm. But the guys were complaining in rehearsal that so-and-so, you know, Kadeem said, Ernie Harden had the best mama jokes. And Everybody said, I want them. So I said, you guys come back with the mama jokes and it'll be like a cutting contest and a jazz band. And 
the the fact is, and I, I don't have it because in those days it wasn't digitally recorded in those days, so it wasn't easy to say. But the, the outtakes of the mama jokes that I couldn't put in because it would have got us an X rating hmm. were so funny, and I don't have them anymore. And I said, guys, we got to get this in theaters. We can go R-rated. We can't go. We can't, you know, have riots in the streets. So, <laughs> but they were funny. They were really mm -hmm. funny. Humor can be liberating, hopefully, and these, especially when it's about, you know, serious involvement. So there you have it—a little sneak peek into what is an epic start to season two of an Irishman Inside Basketball. A massive thanks to Ron Shelton and, of course, to John Marr, the man who managed to wrangle this guest for us, my researcher on the show, who did epic research for this episode. There's so much more for you to hear from Ron over the next hour or so. Come on over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Gain access to season one of Irishman Inside Basketball, the uncut episodes ad-free, and of course, season two, which is on the way very soon. A few surprises there. You'll, you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to our chosen charity partner. We don't have a corporate sponsor in the show, so we use that space to raise awareness of one charity, and that is Jigsaw.ie. If you are experiencing mental health problems, you'll understand that being a young person growing up through a pandemic must be extra special hard. Jigsaw is an Irish mental health charity that aims to equip young people across Ireland with the mental health skills they'll need to survive life and a global pandemic. Check out their work at jigsaw.ie. Maybe they can help you or maybe with a small donation, you can help them. Please do come over to Patreon and join us. I can't wait to release season two. I am in talks with a few very special guests and I want to have it all locked down and ready to go by the end of the summer. So uh, please do come and join us for the price of a pint a month. You'll get access to absolutely everything over there at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Thanks to Brian Connolly for his production, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. I'm going to go off and shoot a few bricks. I'll see you very soon. <laughs>